Welcome to New Hope and the teaching ministry of Pastor Randy Rainwater. Today's message from Adult Ministry Director Patrick Moran. And as the bride entered the auditorium and everybody stood up to look at the bride, I don't want you to think I'm weird, but I stood up and looked at the groom. Patrick says the bride is the focal point, but the face of the groom speaks loudly about how he feels about her. In today's message, we're going to look at the long-expected wedding of the Lamb and his bride. Turn in your Bibles now to Revelation chapter 19 as Pastor Randy brings Patrick to the stage. Patrick, come on up here. So excited that Patrick is our teacher this morning. I love this guy. I love his passion for Jesus. I love his passion for Hannah. Uh, because she was my youth group kid, and I'm so glad that, that she married a godly man. And I'm so thankful. Listen, anybody who says there's no God, oh wow, meet this guy right yeah. here, yeah. all right? Amen. Meet Amen. this guy right here, and I'm so excited about him bringing the word today. So welcome, Patrick. Thanks. <clears throat> well, good morning. Um, if you can open your Bible as your copy of God's word to Revelation 19, uh, I would like to open in a word of prayer to... Hopefully, let the Holy Spirit lead me this morning. Father, we come to you uh, grateful that we get to worship you safely and comfortably in this environment, that we are not persecuted here. We see what's going on around the world, but we know that your word contains truth, and the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for every person. And so we thank you that we have this book and where I am asking as a sinner saved by grace to not let me get in my own way, that you may speak through me and speak the truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, so Revelation 19, that's where we're gonna be. Revelation chapter 19. Uh, raise your hands if you need a Bible. Our ushers are coming through. But one thing I wanna say that kind of hit me as we were worshiping this morning, that, um, that last kind of mashup song that we did with Agnes Day on the end, Holy, holy are you, Lord God Almighty, worthy is the Lamb. There's something that happened in my walk with Jesus when I started to look at the holiness of God. This respect, this reverence, at times breaking down in tears knowing how sinful I am because when you start to look at the holiness of God, you start to see your own depravity. And so there's something about the holiness of God that just gets me going, and I'm excited that we sang that this morning. Um, but as we, as we look at Revelation 19, I wanna open with sharing a little story. Hannah and I had the chance to attend a wedding a couple of weeks ago, and weddings are incredible. Uh, weddings are fun, weddings are exciting. There's so much love and joy and happiness and nervous excitement, right? And as the bride entered the auditorium and everybody stood up to look at the bride, I don't want you to think I'm weird, but I stood up and looked at the groom. And I didn't do that spontaneously. I didn't say, oh, you know, disrespect to the bride. But as she walked into the room, the man who led me to Christ had told me something and I was reminded of it. He said that everyone, as everyone turns to watch the bride enter, because she is the focal point at the beginning of the ceremony, but ultimately God's the focal point because that's who we're in covenant with. But as the bride enters, he says, I like to look at the groom's face. No disrespect to the bride, but the face of a groom tells a lot about how he feels about his bride. 
Yes, the bride is beautiful. Yes, the bride is the focal point of the beginning of the ceremony. But the face of the groom tells a lot about how he feels about her. And as the doors open, she takes her first steps into the building. The groom beams with pride over her beauty. His eyes well up with tears as he understands that she is this incredible gift from God. He realizes that all the work and all the hard times and the struggles and the laughs and the joy, everything has culminated in this moment when he gets to take his bride and love her and cherish her as his beloved. And today we're gonna look at a wedding in Revelation chapter 19. We're gonna look at the long expected wedding of the lamb and his bride. So we're gonna read Revelation chapter 19 verses six through eight. If y'all will read along with me, this is where we're gonna end up today, but I just wanna let you guys know what's coming. Revelation chapter 19 verse six. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude. This is John speaking like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Now, last week, Pastor Randy taught on Revelation 11. Today, we're in Revelation 19. There's a lot that's happened in between Revelation 11 and 19. I'm gonna zoom through and give you two scriptures to tell you kind of synopsis of what happened in chapters 12 through 18. In chapters 12 through 14, we get a glimpse of war being waged by the devil on God's faithful. John implores God's people to patiently endure. Be faithful, God's people. Be faithful during this time of intense persecution. We can almost say, Afghanistan, be faithful to God. If you are a Christian in Afghanistan, be, be faithful, be patient, wait on God. John sees an angel who shouts to every tribe, nation, tongue, language. He says, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of living water, or the springs of water. God's judgment is coming God's judgment is coming. In chapters 15 and 16, we see God's wrath and judgment being poured out on earth, leading to this final victory of God that we're gonna cover today and next week as we close Revelation. John sees 10 kings who give their authority to the beast and who will wage war against the lamb. I don't know who these kings are. I don't think it's important. What's important is this, and the lamb will conquer them for he is Lord of lords and king of kings and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. That's what's important about that section. Chapter 18 opens with this lament for the destruction of Babylon. And it opens with a cry for God's people to come out of Babylon so you don't share in Babylon's sins. The ESV study Bible says that Babylon represents the lust of godless societies for sensual pleasure and their rejection of all restraints. It represents idolatry, spiritual idolatry. We do not need to look far to see that this description of Babylon is a description of fallen human nature. Within the borders of America does Babylon reside. There seems to be an insatiable thirst for sexual immorality. Pornography is killing marriages. Pornography is killing intimacy. Human pride is celebrated in an exaltation of self-satisfaction. We are celebrating the base sexual desires of people. 
instead of looking to God's holiness. It seems, as though as no, it seems as though no child in public school is being pointed to God to find their identity. Instead, they're told to look inward at their most base desires and say, whatever my sexuality is, that's my identity. Or even to look at their skin color and say, whatever color I am determines what group I'm in. God's kingdom is multicolored, multiracial. It's beautiful. Every tribe, every nation, every language. One million babies are aborted in America every year. There seems to be no restraint on those who seek to kill the most innocent among us. The only hope that we have is Jesus Christ. Only he can change our hearts. Only he can purify us. Only he can take our eyes off of ourselves and put them on him. We love to look at ourselves. We need to look at him. Jesus is the answer, but there's good news. There is good news. God will judge Babylon and Babylon will be destroyed as God pours out his wrath on evil and wicked mankind. And chapter 19 of Revelation takes a look at the response of God's people to the destruction of Babylon and the uniting of the risen Lord Jesus Christ and his church, now purified. So chapter 18 ends with a mighty angel declaring that Babylon will be destroyed and Babylon will be no more. Chapter 19, verse one. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belongs to our God for his judgments are true and just for he has judged the great prostitute, that's Babylon, who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more, they cried out, hallelujah. The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who is seated on the throne saying, amen, hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, hallelujah, for the Lord, our God, the Almighty reigns. That is the beginning of chapter 19. That is how God's people, that is how God's creation celebrates the destruction of Babylon. We see the word hallelujah here used four times. Hallelujah is a Greek word that's a transliteration of two Greek words, the first one being halal, which means to praise, and the second one being yah, which means God. And if there's any Hebrew speakers, I'm sorry for butchering that. But Hallelujah is to praise God. These, uh, chapter 19 of Revelation is the only place in the New Testament where hallelujah is seen. I was astounded when I was studying this. I said, there's no way. I'm pulling up all my Bible software, searching for hallelujah. Revelation 19, that's it. But it's first seen in the Old Testament in Psalm 104, verse 35. And David says this, let sinners be consumed from the earth and let the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O my soul, praise the Lord. That's hallelujah at the end, praise the Lord. Isn't it interesting that in the Psalm of David and the song of the multitude in heaven, hallelujah is used to sing praises to God for his judgment on the wicked oppressors of his people. The Psalm of David is about God's people being delivered from the hands of the Egyptians. The song of the multitude in heaven is about the deliverance from those who oppress the martyrs and the saints of God. 
The great multitude in heaven is rejoicing because salvation has come to God's people and with it glory and power that belong to God. John MacArthur points out that this salvation that they're singing about is not referring to our justification or sanctification, right? We are justified in front of a holy God because of what Christ did for us. That's not the salvation that they're singing about. They're actually celebrating the final aspect of salvation history, which is the glorification of the saints in the kingdom of Christ. Heaven rejoices over the true and just judgments of God, that he has judged those who've corrupted the land. He's avenged the blood of his people. Isaiah prophesied about this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, saying that the Messiah will uphold his kingdom with justice and righteousness for how long? Forever. Justice and righteousness forever. Again, the multitude in heaven cry out hallelujah because the smoke from Babylon's destruction rises forever, signifying that judgment, the judgment of God is final. The judgment of God is permanent. The judgment of God is irreversible cannot be changed. There's a growing group of people who call themselves Christians who deny that God is wrathful. Say God's wrath is only in the Old Testament. They deny that God will actually judge the wicked. Uh, A preacher that I like who deals mostly with missions uh, and training missionaries, Paul Washer, he frequently uh, preaches on the attributes of God. And he says that it's always inevitable that whenever he preaches on wrath, whenever he preaches on judgment, that There's some in the congregation who approach him afterwards and claim, I could never love a God like that. My God is love. And he looks at them and says, well, then you don't love God. God is love. God is mercy. God is also justice. And God is also wrath. And God is also righteousness. He is all of these things. One day God will judge evil. And one day God will judge all those who commit evil and are found outside of Christ. If on the day of judgment, you are found outside of Christ, the only thing left for you will be the holy hatred of God pouring out on you. But through Christ, we have hope. Ephesians, Paul tells us in Ephesians, and of course it's all over the New Testament about the hope we have in Christ. It's all over the Old Testament, the hope we have in God and the promised Christ But Paul tells us in Ephesians that through the blood of Jesus, through his substitutionary death on the cross, we are no longer strangers to God. We've been brought near. Now we are members of his household and he will declare us not guilty on the day of judgment. What a beautiful thing to know or what a beautiful thing it is to know that on the day of judgment, God will be pleased to look at Christ instead of looking at me and my sin. There's a hymn I've been listening to the last couple of weeks called Before the Throne of God Above. And the second verse goes like this. And I won't sing it, I'll just say it. There's a reason I don't sing it, okay. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. This is our hope. Jesus Christ is our hope. I wanna look at verse four. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures, they fell down, they worship God who is seating on the throne. Another hallelujah cries out. An angel says, praise our God, all you his servants. And this, this incredible 
shout of the great multitude like the roar of many waters and the sound of mighty peals of thunder cry out hallelujah for the Lord our God the almighty reigns. All of God's creation, all of God's people are encouraged to praise God for his justice and for his righteousness. Now this last hallelujah that we see in verse six, it ushers us into this next scene of Jesus's revelation to John. The first set of praises was due to the glorification of God, the glorification of the saints in Christ's kingdom. But this hallelujah is different. This is a praise for a different reason because a wedding celebration is coming. Revelation chapter 19 verses seven and eight. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. The praise and rejoicing continues in heaven, but this time it's not for the destruction of Babylon. It's not for the glorification of the saints. This time heaven rejoices because Christ will have his bride. And just like the anticipation of a groom on his wedding day, Christ will be glad to receive his bride. An 18th century preacher, Jonathan Edwards, says this about this scene. The day of Christ's espousals, the day of the gladness of his heart, when as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so he will rejoice over his church. Scripture is filled with references to marriage. We know that God created marriage with Adam and Eve. We know that Jesus affirms God's design for marriage in the gospels. Paul explains that a lot of our so-called good works are to be done within the context of our marriages. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. That's a good work to be done in the context of your marriage. There's also this picture in the Old Testament of God portraying himself as the loving husband to an adulterous wife, that he loved Israel and Israel kept straying from him. And he even chose one of his prophets to marry a prostitute to say, this is the image. This is the picture. I am you. You are faithful to your wife. Your wife is cheating on you. This is the picture of Israel's spiritual idolatry. So we see marriage all throughout scripture. I want to take some time now to discuss ancient Jewish wedding tradition. And there's a reason behind this. It's going to help us understand why God continues to use these marriage uh, imagery, this marriage imagery uh, to help us understand who he is. Jewish weddings were remarkable spectacles, and we can glean a lot from looking at the ancient practice to help us understand the picture of Christ and Christ's church. The process began with a betrothal. This was ancient Jews. The process would begin with a betrothal, what we would call an engagement. The groom and the bride were chosen by their parents. Isn't it interesting that Jesus was chosen by God to complete redemption, and God has chosen the bride of Christ? 2 Corinthians 11.2, Paul says this. He's addressing the spiritual idolatry in Corinth and, Corinth, and he says, For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband, to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. In addressing their spiritual idolatry, still using Christ is the faithful groom, you are the spiritually idolatrous wife. The first step of the wedding was to choose a bride. If you're chosen, you're a Christian. If you're a Christian, you're chosen. We're not going to get into Reformed theology here. Okay. The next step was the bride price. So after the betrothal, there was a bride price, a price to be paid that showed the value 
of the bride to the groom. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, Paul says, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God and your body. Again, we see this image of purity within the bride. But we see that we are bought with a price and we were bought with the blood of Christ. The next step was the betrothal period in which the bride and the groom would enter into a covenant together that they were committed to each other until the wedding. At the betrothal ceremony, the groom would present to the father of the bride a list of promises and all the ways that he was gonna take care of the bride. It was just a list of promises. Hebrews 10, 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. Doesn't Jesus promise us that he will see us through to the end? He doesn't promise that your bank account, that your bank account will grow. He promises that he sees us through to the end. I heard from a pastor in Canada that a promise is only as good as the one who makes it. Isn't it assuring to know that the one who promises to us is true and faithful? The groom and the, uh, the, groom and the bride would then enter into covenant by drinking wine from the same cup. The groom would drink first, the, the bride would drink second. Luke twenty-two twenty, Jesus, speaking of taking communion in remembrance of him, said this, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus drank from the cup first, and we drink from the cup second. When the bride would drink from that cup, she was saying, basically, I do. Saying, I'm entering into this covenant with you. When you drink from this metaphorical cup, you are saying, I do, to Christ. Then there would be the giving of gifts from the bridegroom to the bride. The groom would give anything he had of value anything he had of value. And the gift would be something for the bride to remember the groom by. We have engagement rings. This would be just, here's anything I have of value. Remember me, remember me. And there's a reason that the, that the groom is leaving. There's a reason that the bride has to remember him. Peter preached in Acts chapter two, verse 38 and 39. Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. The Holy Spirit is the gift from our groom to remember him by. Isn't one of the jobs of the Holy Spirit to bring to remembrance, right? We're to remember Jesus through the work of the Holy Spirit. Then the groom would depart from his bride, head back to his father's home, and begin construction on the wedding chambers. Now things are starting to line up for you, right? The groom would depart and begin construction on the wedding chambers. John 14, verse one through three, Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Traditionally, the groom did not know how long he was gone. It was up to the father of the groom to say when the groom was ready to go get his bride. Matthew 24, 36. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the son, but the father only. 
There was consecration of the bride. During the time the groom was gone, the bride was to keep herself pure. Ephesians 5, Paul says this, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In order for the church of Christ, the bride, to be cleansed and purified, sin must be destroyed. And this is how we get back to Revelation 19. Relating to our passage in Revelation, only as Babylon is destroyed can the bride be presented without blemish to the lamb. I wanna look at the last half of verses seven and eight. His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. John MacArthur reminds us that the bride has made herself ready in the power of God, by the grace of God, through the work of the Spirit of God. Nothing that I can do on my own can make me presentable to God. It's only through the Spirit of God. Specifically, in dealing what it means for the church to actually be made ready, Matthew Henry says, the church of Christ being purified from errors, divisions, and corruptions in doctrine, discipline, worship, and practice will be made ready to be publicly owned by him as his delight and his beloved. It will be the delight of Christ to receive his bride holy and purified. It is his delight. When I decided to ask Hannah to marry me, I approached the man who led me to Christ and was trying to seek advice, right? The Bible tells me to seek wise counsel. And I approached him and he said, you know, he was asking me all these questions and, and then he said, some guys, when they want to marry their girlfriend, they will say, if you ask them, why do you want to marry her? They'll say, well, I just can't live without her. Well, that statement's not true. Because you, you just keep on living, right? You're not going to die if you don't marry this girl. I would hope not. Our hope is in Jesus, right? Okay. <laughs> what he said is, the right question to ask and the right question to answer is, do you want to live without her? I did not want to live without Hannah. I wanted her every day of my life to share in the joys and the sorrows together. I wanted to have Hannah in my life. Jesus does not need you in heaven. Jesus does not need his church in heaven, but Jesus desires to have his church with him where he is as a groom desires his bride. Now, Jesus desires to have us in heaven. And since Randy gave me the stage today, I have to make a plug for adult ministry. Since I'm up here, I'm gonna tie it in, I promise. Or I'll try to, we're gonna say I did. Okay. <laughs> in reference to the bride of Christ being clothed in the righteous acts of the saints, it should be our joy and our pleasure to pursue holiness. This is what God demands. And Jesus himself is holy, and if we're in pursuit of Jesus, then we should be in pursuit of what it means to be holy. It should be our joy and our pleasure to pursue holiness. That's what the Christian life is. It will be the work of Jesus to present the church to himself as ready, but we play a role in submitting to God, submitting to scripture, and submitting to each other. 
a quick example to prove this, you can choose whether to read your Bible or not. And reading the word of God is, is in the process of sanctification because you're seeing what he's saying. So you play a role in your sanctification. In Ephesians 5, before the passages on how families should love each other, right? Wives submit to your husbands, husbands love your wives. Before those passages, Paul talks about how we should act within the context of our Christian walk. Yes, Christ will present the church to himself as pure and clean, and that's the only way we can be made pure and clean, but it's important to see that we don't sit back and just wait for sanctification to happen. Sanctification of the individuals in the church is an action that we engage in with the Holy Spirit. Paul lays out a prescription for us in Ephesians 5. The prescription from Paul directly leads into the way that our families should be. Ephesians 5, 15 and 16. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of time because the days are evil. We are to be wise in our walk and to make the best use of our time. How can we be wise in our walk? We can submit to scripture and we can seek wise counsel from those who have been in our shoes before us. Ephesians 5, 20 and 21, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. We are to give thanks for everything and we are to submit to each other. How do we do this? Well, here at New Hope, we have many small groups. We have options for anyone to join a small group. I know that, that felt very weird, didn't it? Okay. <laughs> now, <laughs> joining a small group will help you to submit to one another and to grow in your sanctification. Paul implores women to submit to their husbands in everything. Is this hard? Yes, absolutely it is. There's no denying that it's hard to submit to our husband, to, to your husbands, right? I'm not looking at my wife. <laughs> In order to help you with this, seek out wise and godly women from the congregation who have been living a God-fearing life. Seek their wise counsel through discipleship, through small groups. Husbands, Paul implores us to love our wives as Christ loved the church. Is it hard to kill your pride and love your wife as a servant? Yes, experience. It's only been 20 months, but experience. <laughs> it's hard to do. So what helps us seek out wise and godly men in the congregation who have been around the block? Seek their wise counsel. We don't have small groups for social gatherings. We do meet socially, but they're not for social gatherings. We have small groups because meeting together outside of the Sunday gathering is biblical. It's something that we believe in as a church. At New Hope, your children, if your children have been coming here since kindergarten, they've been in a small group since kindergarten through high school. You as parents are to be the first disciplers of your children. Your children are being discipled. You need to be discipled. If you don't know where to turn in scripture to begin a study, join a small group. If you don't know how to read the Bible, join a small group. If you don't know where to turn for help and encouragement, join a small group. If you need accountability to ensure that Christ sits on the throne of your life, join a small group. If you don't feel connected here, 
Join a small group. If you want to surround yourself with godly people who are seeking his face and his will in everything that they do, join a small group. The biggest thing for me when I became a Christian was to leave the old crowd behind and to join godly people who are pointing me to Jesus. If you've been living this Christian life for a while and you feel that God has blessed you with wisdom, it may have felt like a curse in that time, but it became a blessing of wisdom, start a small group. You can lead people because it's not you doing it, it's scripture and the spirit. You can do it. We offer small groups because we wanna see everyone in this church grow in their holiness. Band, you guys can come on up. I'm a little late on that. We offer small groups because we wanna see everyone at this church grow in holiness. Grow in your sanctification. Grow in Jesus Christ. And as we look back at Revelation 19, we see that the bride has, has made herself ready. It was given her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and pure. And it says the linen is the righteous acts of the saints. No act is a righteous act unless it's done through the spirit of God in the name of the kingdom of Christ. I know many people say, well, what about non-believers who do good works? If it's not done in the name of Jesus Christ by his power, it's not a good work. Without Jesus, we are selfish. Any good work we think we do is really deep down for selfish gain. Only through the work and power of Jesus and the Spirit is anything that we do even considered good. What, is, what does Isaiah say? All works are like filthy rags in front of a holy God. There's a hymn that says, Nothing in my hands I bring as I come to God. I don't want to show him anything. I want him to look at Jesus. I want him to look at Jesus. And I want to point to Jesus and say, not me, God, him. He did it on my behalf. As we're going to pray, uh, we're going to take communion. I hope I'm getting the order right. We're going to take communion and we're going to pray. Um, we're going to have our nations back there just as a reminder um, Rose, could you go back there and, and pray for the nations? And of course, bring everyone with you if you want. We're gonna pray specifically for Afghanistan and Haiti. Afghanistan is an absolute mess right now. Um, I never went there. I was in the Marines. I never went to Afghanistan, but I know people who did. And this, they say that this feels like when, when we pulled out of one of the Iraqi cities and it was immediately taken by ISIS. And they said, what, what did we do all that fighting for? So along with the nations, if we could pray for our, our veterans um, and the way that they feel. Um, sorry. Um, over in this corner, we're gonna pray for our neighborhoods. Um, there's so many kids who come here and play basketball. I've hardly seen them in church. Can we pray for them? Men, if you guys like basketball, come out here and play basketball with them. Get to know them, disciple them. Can we pray for our neighborhoods over there? Can we pray for our schools in the neighborhood section, I guess? And then over in this corner, we have the next generation. Kids Life and Lug Live start this Wednesday. This Wednesday, we're kicking off and we are so excited. I'm gonna miss it because I got to do that last year. And there's nothing like preaching at Lug Live on a Wednesday night with 100 people who are just ready to receive. You know, it's great. Lily knows. But... 
If, we're, if you wanna pray for the next generation, go over here, pray for Kids Life, pray for Lug Live, pray for our schools, pray for the kids in Afghanistan, those little girls who have been learning and now cannot because of the ungodly nature of what's happening over there. And of course, back there at the cross, we'll have specific prayer, specific anointing. We'll have, um, I think Brandon's gonna be back there. Uh, Brandon Sisson, one of our elders. So wherever you wanna go, when we, when we say break, go, go pray and pray. It's important, prayer is important. God hears our prayers. And he answers all of them. Sometimes it's no. But we know that he hears us and his throne is a throne of grace and we can come before it with confidence. Will y'all pray with me as we get ready to go pray and take communion and as we get ready to worship? Father, we come to you um, thankful, humbled. Why is it us here and not us in Afghanistan? Um, what a blessing it is to come here and be comfortable to worship you and praise you and teach your word in comfort without persecution. But we do lift up Afghanistan and all the Christians there. We know that this physical life is not the end. There is more to come and there's glory to come. As much joy as we can have down here with your presence, we know that it's so much greater in heaven. And so whether, whether there's persecution, whether there's martyring going on, we know that you're with your saints. We know that you're with your people. You're with your faithful. And we just thank you for your steadfastness, your loving kindness, your mercy. We thank you that one day you will put an end to sin. May we always praise you and glorify you. Help to keep our eyes on you and off of ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks for joining us. I'm Myrna Brown.